Welcome to the Sovereignty, a royal gossip podcast. As always, all statements are our own opinions unless otherwise sourced or noted. The Sovereignty. Hey guys, welcome back to the Sovereignty podcast. This is Alex. And I'm Allison. And we are going to do episode six of The Crown, Tara something. Milius? Sure. <laughs> I think that's right. Anyone who I mean, knows Latin is probably like annoyed with me at the moment. Also, I'm annoyed with me because I listen to one of our podcasts and I say the L-I-K-E word a lot. And so I'm going to work very hard on taking it out of my vocabulary. It's on my 2021 to-do list. Mm-hmm. Um, I And I probably am a lot too. Bear with me as I work on it. I did want your opinion on current events. So it has come out due to the Scottish or a Scottish publication called the national requested more information about Will and Kate's visit um, up through like their, their train visit that we've talked about through the freedom of information act. And it was revealed that the Cambridges ignored two Scottish government warnings to not travel there. What are your thoughts? I think that I would also like to know more. Why I want to know why they said, hey, don't travel here. It's, is it because they thought they would draw crowds? Um, when was this issued? Was it issued before or after plans were finalized? And I think that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I want to know more too. Basically, they kept asking them to call off the traveling due to COVID restrictions and concerns. Um, I just thought it was really interesting that they did it anyway. And I was reading Lainey Gossip's article, and she basically said she's in the camp of thinking that they really wanted to put out a face and an emergent need in regards to positive press because of the crown, um, which we're obviously covering. So I think it's interesting that they did a delay release of, like, Freedom Information Act. Like, this felt like what they would do to, like... Will, or sorry, to Harry and Meghan versus Will and Kate. Like, I, I often feel like Will and Kate get away with, like, everything, whereas, like, if Meghan messed up, she gets, you know, slammed down. But it was interesting to see that they were, they were called out for that behavior. Also, in um, current events, Sarah Ferguson is writing a new romance novel, and it is called Her Heart for a Compass, and it is through Mills and Boone Publishing. Something that I thought was really interesting and I did not know about um, is that they talk about their protagonist and her name is Lady Margaret and she is described as loving to ride side saddle. And I didn't know that side saddle meant like virginal. Did you know this? No. no. So Lainey was writing, Lainey Gossip was writing about this too, that basically uh, side saddle riding was to show someone might be a virgin as opposed to riding with their legs over the horse. And I never knew this about it. So it's very interesting when you look back at the crown and you see like when Queen Elizabeth was expected to ride side saddle versus when she was riding like as a proper, it's mount the right word. Like, a, <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't know that about that. So now when I'm looking back at historical references of side saddle riding, 
it was to protect like femininity and virginal view. And I just never knew this. So I learned something new this week. It makes sense when you think about it versus like having your legs spread out over a horse when, you know, the world's run by men and women aren't supposed to be sexual in any way whatsoever back then. So um, even if it's functional, because, you know, riding a horse isn't necessarily sexual. It's just a functional thing. But um, yeah. Other than that, because of the lockdown, there's not much, not much other news, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, guys, they're not really doing anything. Uh, I'm trying to think if there was any Harry Meghan news, except that it's been a year from the Sandringham Summit, and you and I both don't think that there's any chance in hell that they'll be rejoining. So No. Um, and I know they were supposed to do a like a year review, but with COVID, who knows what's going to happen. Um, oh, there was an announcement about them coming back for Trooping of Color in, is it June, July? I can't ever remember when that happens, but... There was an announcement that for the Queen's birthday that they would be back. And then they were like, anyone making that announcement is presumptive because who knows what's going to happen with COVID still. Yeah. So. Um, and then uh, Meghan Markle's sis, half-sister, Samantha, I guess, has released a book, like a tell-all or whatever. I can't wait to not read it, but I also... I guess I'm just... The last time they were even like together was in 2008. So I'm not super sure what people change and she might've like, think about your relationships with your siblings. When I was younger, yeah, we were close, but like we were mean to each other, but now we're good friends. And so if she's basing all of this off of how Megan acted when she was younger, like you don't know her now though. So I also think there's a lot of deep-seated jealousy in that relationship based on the fact that Samantha Markle has constantly tried to be in the public eye since Megan has announced that she is marrying or dating Harry even. Like she was on mm-hmm. the news circuit ASAP. So I don't think the story is going to be very nice or the book will be. Yeah, I guess I just – I mean anything – to make a dollar, I guess. So True. it'll be interesting. I'll probably read some reviews, but I probably I won't can't wait for it. you to tell me all about it because I will not be reading it. But if you do by chance, let me know. Um, I don't so, know. I also didn't read Finding Freedom. Like I'm not. I'm just not I, interested. I didn't read it either, and I'm a fan of them. I just it didn't really. I don't need a memoir at this point in their lives. I need yeah. one in. 10 years. to 15 years. Yeah, when there's more dirt that they're willing to give out when it's not a PR move. Like I want an actual memoir a la Mm -hmm. Jessica Simpson. Oh yeah. That one was such a great memoir. Um, when you're willing to be honest and upfront about your mistakes as much as other, like they're not there yet. They're still in self-preservation mode. So I don't think there's Mm -hmm. a lot of admitting if they've made any missteps in that. It's a lot of like, we were the victims, which I do believe that they were victimized by the press. I do, but I don't think, I think there's also, responsibility on their end and, and certain maneuvers that they have not admitted to either. So. Yeah. I don't know. Also, does, does, well, do William and Kate have a book at all? Like, no, right? Nope. I think my L I K counter is up to like 10 as I just said at 11. Oh, guys, I'm sorry if you're actually listening. <laughs> uh, so this is, we said Tara Nolius, which is no man's land or nobody's land is the definition. Yep. And 
It's season four, episode six of The Crown. So am I starting or are you starting? Because you had some notes above. Uh, those are just my um, jots that I totally forgot to take away. You go right it's ahead. Totally <laughs> fine. So I'm going to give a trigger warning and try and be better about it ahead of time. There is, are some mentions of disordered eating throughout this, and I will try and announce that ahead. But if I don't, just be aware that it is mentioned in here. We don't go into any graphic detail, though. So it's February 26, 1983, and we see a man walking in on a new set. It is the prime or a candidate for the prime minister of Australia named Bob Hawke. And he's going into ABC Studios for a conference before a news conference before the election. And they're kind of asking him some last minute questions before the election. And they ask him how he feels in regards to his first like essential hosting task, because it's looking like he's going to win based on the polls, which is he will be hosting Prince Charles and Princess Diana in Australia for their first tour as a married couple. And he's like, will Charles be a good king of Australia? And Bob kind of is sarcastic immediately and like making a joke. And he's like, I don't think this is going to be the most important thing I'll do in my first month. The crowd laughs. And then he sarcastically says that he's met with Charles a few times and he's a nice young bloke and like with an eye roll. And it's clear that there's not a lot of respect here. Um, and he's like, we're past the part or time point of needing a monarchy. Uh, we're a mature country. We don't need the queen. And he's very honest and clear about his, his position that he wants to remove the like Australia from the Commonwealth. And he says, I respect and admire the queen enormously. The desire to simply have a head of state that embodies and represents Australia's values and traditions, a head of state that looks like us, sounds like us, and thinks like us, as opposed to a POM, which is an unelected non-Australian who lives on the other side of the world and for all of their good intentions is a different breed. This is where I drew a hard line in the sand though. He goes, you wouldn't put a pig in charge of a herd of prime beef cattle, even if it looked good in a twin set in pearls. I was so mad at this point because it's like, do you respect her or do you not? Because if you respect her and say, we just don't need her anymore versus like, I'm going to call her a pig on national television it was disgusting. Also, I'm really curious as how she doesn't look like them because it's also referenced. I think it's like, oh, it's a woman in charge of it. There's just like this total bro mentality about him that we'll learn a little bit more later where he sees women as kind of like objects. And, and it's very interesting to me that he just decided to describe her in that way. I also understand why people would be against being in the Commonwealth. I don't know if you have thoughts on that too as a country. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, I would, I mean, I mean, I love, we clearly really enjoy the Royal family. No, um, I love the Royal family from a sociological standpoint. Like I love watching them and discussing them and gossiping about them. Do I think they need to govern or be, are they needed? No. It's almost like, like a JV team is, I hate saying that, but I understand their reason for the Commonwealth, but it's it's kind of like well you you know how like the the varsity team got to practice and like the nice stuff and the JV JV team had they like they never got to see the coach and they get pawned them off on like the assistant coach and it's just like okay but we would rather have somebody here kind of thing I understand so that I also I think it goes back to colonization and white supremacy and 
people taking land that wasn't theirs and then determining through war and other things like this is our land or we're going to send all of our felons down here or whatever it is with, you know, Australia and specifically, but are they needed? I mean, that could be a different discussion for a different day. They're supposed to show stability. I just find I can empathize and understand and I get Bob Hawke's initial thought process of we're a country with a great economy. We don't need the queen. Um, okay. I just so, think he's handling it in the wrong way. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so this is inaccurate. Um, Bob Hawke was the prime minister from 1983 to 1991, and he was actually widely considered one of the most popular leaders. He, this also never happened. He never referenced her as a pig. Um, the most controversial thing he had said on that Four Corners program, and actually if you look at screenshots from that Four Corners program versus the one in the crown, it's uncanny. They did an amazing job. All he said was, I don't think we'll be talking about kings in Australia forevermore. I believe we'd be better off as a republic. That's it. That's the worst thing he said. That's so, amazing because I, I yeah. for sure thought that they pulled this from a real interview because it seemed so <laughs> accurate. Like who would say that? And also, I don't know if he's still alive, but like how awful to he's say that he said this. So actually there was then an article in the Daily Mail and it claims that his widow was extremely displeased at his portrayal in The Crown, calling it cringeworthy. And he was she was upset that the actor would not stand up to the director and fair. say he never said this. This mm-hmm. is fair. No, it, okay. For the first time, I'm like, maybe The Crown didn't do the research, but um, it definitely, that rubs me the wrong way. So as you know, he ended that line by saying, like, I don't care if how good she looks in a twin set and pearls. And then it cuts the scene of the queen in a twin set and pearls. And I laughed out loud. Um, and she's asking her staff member, I think it's probably her private secretary, Martin. I can't remember. She's like, who won the election? And he's like, Hawk won by a landslide. And she's like, oh, the one that wants us out. And I just put, oh, fuck. And then we learn he's a former trade union negotiator. And he's also the holder, record holder worldwide for beer drinking, like in a time he drank like a large amount of beer in a short amount of time. And I put charming. Like he's a guy's guy. Yeah. There is, I did some research on this, but I didn't end up putting it in because it's it's such like a small detail, but he um, had actually quit drinking and, but he did, he was a good drinker, but he quit drinking at a certain they point. totally like threw him under the bus this episode. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. And then we learned he has a wife named Hazel and the queen goes, strange to name a child after a tree. And I laughed out loud at that as well, even though I like the name Hazel. It was just very funny. And she put the queen remarks that this is going to put extra pressure on Charles and Diana, basically this upheaval of do we want the monarchy? Do we not want the monarchy right at the same time of Charles and Diana coming to do their trip. Um, she's worried about it in general. And she's also worried about some hot gossip that she's been hearing from Kensington palace. And I put whatever that could be. And so trigger warning, we see a lady's lunch with the queen, the queen mother, princess Margaret and Anne, and they're discussing Diana's lack of being able to cope with the role. And this is overlaid on a montage of Diana, like binge eating desserts and, making herself sick. There was a nice shot of some eggs Benedict, which I literally wrote, I would kill for eggs Benedict right now because I haven't been to a proper brunch in almost a year. 
And uh, it just looks so good. Anyway, sorry. And then so she keeps making herself sick. And then they cut back to the queen and and her immediate women's circle. And she's not understanding why Diana would do that. So they've been openly discussing her eating disorder. And Margaret clearly says, and I want to say this is Princess Margaret, not Prime Minister Margaret, because I know we talk about both of them. Uh, People will do the strangest things to themselves when they are unhappy. And it made me really think about Margaret too, because she had a lot of self-destructive behaviors and past seasons that we'll probably cover at some point. Um, But they're at least aware of it as a family. Are they helping her? It does not appear to be so, but they're aware. So to you. Okay. At this time, Margaret lived in apartment 1A and Diana and Charles lived in apartments 8 and 9. And don't think that these are like one bedroom apartments. They like span floors. Um, so if there was any fighting or anything going on there and also staff talk. So there's a very good chance Margaret was well aware of what was happening, but it's obviously not confirmed. In Diana, in her own words, Diana stated that the queen indicated that the reason for their marital problems was because of the bulimia, not that it was a symptom of it. So essentially she was saying, you know, Charles can't cope with the fact that, you know, you have bulimia or what, however it is she put it. And she's like, no, like I have bulimia because Charles and my marriage is not working. Um, And then in the Panorama interview, she states, the thing about bulimia is your weight always stays the same. So you can pretend the whole way through. There's no proof. Um, It's just a self-harming control behavior that she relied on during a really hard time in Mm -hmm. her life. And it's heartbreaking. Exactly. The last quote I have is, uh, again, from the Panorama interview. And she said, the cause was the situation where my husband and I had to keep everything together because we didn't want to disappoint the public. And yet, obviously, there was a lot of anxiety going on within our four walls. So Anne, who is the love of my life, like I just want to make a t-shirt that says Princess Anne for president. Like I just love her. Um, Anne mentions that Diana wants to take the baby on this Australian tour. And this, the baby's William, if anyone doesn't realize that. Um, no no harm, time changes. But yeah, so they're like, Diana wants to take baby William on the tour. The queen is shocked by this, like more shocked by this than the eating disorder, which is shocking to me. But obviously, we don't know if this is her real reaction. This was the crown's version of her reaction. And queen mother is like, why would anyone take a baby anywhere? And Elizabeth says that they never took the kids anywhere when they went to Australia in 1954. They left the kids at home for five months. And I was like, I cannot imagine. Like, that's such a large time of your life with your child, if you think about it. Like, I read this thing once where you only get 18 summers with your kids before they, like – it's really, when you think about it, before they – like become adults and go to college. So like every year is like one less summer to like have with them. And it was just like a really heartbreaking thing. And then to think that you miss almost half a year of your kid's life when you only have 18 years of them living with you. It's crazy. Granted, it does appear that the Royals all live together forever. So maybe it's not a big deal for them, but um, yeah. And so Margaret judgmentally and sarcastically asked us like, do you think there was a consequence of that? And I just loved it because Margaret this whole season is razzing Elizabeth's parenting style, like in little clips and it's throughout the whole season. So it's great. And, and Margaret kind of looks at Anne and Anne doesn't say anything. And I put good girl. Cause like there's no winning this conversation. Um, and now I think we're at high Grove. I'm pretty sure we're at high Grove. Um, and we see Charles arrive alone 
and there's Camilla and I put some dude that looks like Jason Sudeikis, who I think is her husband. And they look at each other and they all agree at each other. And then I said, so, I can't. Andrew is there- Parker Bull. It, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. I just, yeah. I wasn't sure if it was him, but cause he was so comfortable and so happy and like gave a little nod and a little wink. And I'm like, he's fucking your wife like all the time. There is speculation though, that the, that uh, Andrew and Camilla had an open marriage. And so he knew if there's also in this, a, a tidbit where Andrew has his arm around another woman, which might kind of be alluding to that but and continue. once again this is andrew parker bowles not prince andrew i i wish there were different names but they all apparently there's only a few to choose from and ironically he does look like jason sudeikis in a hat and all i can think about now is jason sudeikis and olivia wilde who is also a princess their marriage falling apart um via her decision but were they to, married or just engaged they were engaged but they were together for eight years yeah a long long time yeah super they cute have two kids, kids together yeah, it was just if you like to read any of the current event gossip mags, that's an interesting one. Um, and so we see a hunting scene mixed in with a party scene. So there's an initial scene of Charles and Camilla riding their horses, not side saddle, <laughs> sorry, uh, side by side with a bunch of hunting dogs. And this references back to what Allison had said before about Camilla was grateful that she had the hunting part. Like she could still maintain that connection with Charles. Um, and then also this party scene and it's back and forth and I'm not going to go over the joke, but it's funny, but it's also very crass that they tell. So it would be a cute scene if these people were not married to other people. Um, but basically what happens is Charles starts telling a joke. Camilla keeps finishing the lines. Like it's very much like, They've done this before. They're very comfortable with each other. They finish each other's sentences. They have really great chemistry. She's extremely comfortable acting as if she is the, like, woman of the house and, like, the host of this party as well. Um, They're all in formal attire, and they're standing in the middle of this large party like a couple. And Diana is not there at all. Um, I know they're best friends, but it's just a little weird that all of his friends were okay with this behavior and, like, how shittily they treated Diana in the process. Um, I also put the actors have incredible chemistry because they really do because Charles, whoever's playing Charles, I should know his name always seems miserable. And the only time he truly lights up and like has a spark is around Camilla and it, it, it feels very natural. Um, and I put the whole crowd is watching them tell this joke, including Jason Sudeikis, Parker Bowles, and they're all laughing and Charles and Camilla like grab hands and hold on to each other at the end. And I was like, what are your thoughts on this? I think that the probability of this actually happening is very high. And I think everybody in his friend circle knew. They all knew that he loved Diana, but in his own way. And that he and Camilla were really the ones that she was the true love of his life, like in a traditional sense. Yeah. I think this also does a really, really good job. Um, think about when when you've seen actors or anything or even real life people when they're like, oh, how did you guys meet? And the couple tells their stories and finishes each other's sentence. Yes. Like it, it shows a bond that has been there and formed years and years over. And it's just sort of like second nature between you two. There's a great, like, there is a great bond between them. It's very obvious. It is sad for me because he was not allowed to marry her. And it's clear that, like, no matter what, it always came back to her. 
it just still sticks with me how like there was no transparency or communication with Diana on her role. And it's just disgusting, like uh, how they treat her and how his friends were okay treating her. Um, So after this little party hunt scene, we see, and I put teen princess Diana and baby boy, boy Charles sitting like, literally depressed preteens in front of the queen. They are like hunched over. They look like completely deflated and defeated and just like miserable little, little angry hormonal people. And the queen is like in front of them going, this is a really fucking important trip. We need you to get your shit together. Like it's the pep talk pre Australia. And their, their secretaries are reminding them that like, this is one of our largest parts of the Commonwealth. You need to get it together. And so Charles is physically turned away from Diana on the couch. Like his body language is like so cold towards her. And she is like just facing forward with like her head in her hands. It's truly great physical acting. Um, They have also, this is a great place place to um, point out the body language difference between him and Camilla versus him and Diana. Like they're never affectionate towards each other. Um, They're very unhappy. Philip and Elizabeth try to give a like, Teamwork is the dream work speech and explain that their Australian adventure actually brought them closer um, in their marriage. And they're hoping the same thing will happen for them. Charles looks at Diana and she's not even looking at him. And now we're at the airport. So my husband was watching this with me and I had already started taking notes. And then all of a sudden he goes, that is a huge baby. So I'm just going to throw that out here and continue to make comments about this baby. And I'm sure that it's not nice because it's a child, but this is like one of the largest baby actors I've ever seen in my life. Um, So we're at the airport and Diana is carrying this huge monster baby actor who is representing William. And I stand by the fact that she is, the actress is doing a great job physically and like embodying Diana, but she is so much shorter and petite in real life because I think this baby is probably a normal size baby on this tiny frame actress and it's just really interesting to watch the two of them together because like this baby is like half her size and supposedly like less than two years old and it is wild um so william is screaming absolutely screaming and she hands him to a nanny and i guess he's coming on the trip and so we see charles's secretary on the plane talking to talking to charles only diana sitting over on the side And they're discussing the schedule and like Diana like cuts in and she's like, that's an awful lot of moving around for a baby. And this baby needs stability. And the secretary is all like, this is why he was never intended to be part of the trip. And Diana cuts back and she's like, well, I made it crystal clear that if there's no baby, there's no me. Charles remarks how hard everyone has worked to restructure and reschedule and reorganize this trip that has been years in the pl- of planning, which is true. They do plan these things for like years to bring this baby along. And instead of her being away from him for six weeks, she'll only be away from him for two. Diana is like, well, where will he be? And they say he'll be on a sheep station in South Wales called Woomagara, Woomagara, I think. And she's pissed. She was not told about this ahead of time. She basically grabs the secretary. Like she walks up, she's like, come here. And he's like, I'm busy. I have work to do. Like, he's so rude to her. It's insane. Um, And she points to her baby and she's like, he's perfect. He's amazing and wonderful. How can you expect me to be away from him? And 
the secretary says, because you married the Prince of Wales, and that is an act of service to the crown and to the country, which you signed up to willingly and with open eyes, and you are the Princess of Wales. And I will have to say, she did sort of sign up willingly, but not with open eyes, because they've never been transparent with her about the expectations at any point. Also, the fact that he is talking to royalty like this in front of like and being okay with it. Like if you watch the scene, he is so dismissive and cold and like, oh, little girl, go away. And Charles doesn't say anything, which is also really disgusting to me. And so after he says this line of like, you're the princess of Wales, she slams him back in the best way that like, remember, she's like 1920. And she goes, and the greatest act that I can give to the crown as princess is to not be some meek little wife following the great prince around like some smiling doll, but to be a living, breathing, and present mother, bringing up this child in the hope that the boy will one day become, or who will one day become king still has a vestige of humanity in him because God knows he's not going to get it from any of his courtiers. And it was like slam to the secretary, slam to Charles because he has no humanity left because his mother never touched him. Like literally, and I don't mean that like weird, like she literally did not hold him. Like, and, and, um, it honestly kind of made me sympathize with Megan and Harry a little bit because like Harry's so physically affectionate and I know Catherine is too. William is not. It's just very interesting to like see the difference in like how they were raised and how they were parented and and like expectations. And I know that like I agree with you sometimes that Megan tries to cosplay Diana's like perfect mother. Um, but it's also very natural to want to touch your child and like interact with your child. And it's just very different in how Charles was raised. So Charles like looks at his child as like a prop and an obligation, whereas Diana is like, this is my reason for living. So Diana appears to win the argument and I understand both sides. Like they have the resources to work with this though. So that's where I'm a little bit confused. I'm also very confused why they've had discussions about the schedule without even talking to Diana. And I know that that could be real or fake. Like she probably knew a a little bit more, but she's being treated like a prop rather than a person. And we see Diana and Charles get off the plane now uh, being greeted by a ton of military and like an epic rainstorm. And William is continuing to sob as she carries him down. She hands him off to the nanny and Charles is like, come on, let, like, let's get going. And now we see Diana and Charles separate from William and he's evidently being taken away to the sheep station, which I didn't realize like the way that they made it look, it looked like Diana won that argument and Charles was going to be with her. But they're not bending. Like he needs to be away and she needs to focus on work to you. Okay. So Diana and Charles were ready to go on this trip and they were ready to leave William there. And it was going to be a four week trip. Diana's first one overseas as a working member of the Royal family. There was never a fight about taking William It was actually the Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, who wasn't the Prime Minister at the time of the tour, who had written them a letter and said, it seems to me that you being such a young family would like to bring your child out. Would you like to bring your child out? So essentially, Charles was like, well, do you? And she was like, yeah. So they turned a four-week trip into a six-week trip so that they could then do two weeks in New Zealand. And Diana said, well, we didn't see much of William, but it was nice to be under the same sky. So being in like the same time zones, the same area, like way, way, way closer than if he were to be left in England. Now, I say that with with everything that we have that Diana has said since, 
books written in some of the books that I've read, it's still very much portrayed that there was, there was kind of a, a, a battle to see if she could bring William. Um, I do think that the scene was added for two, for two reasons. One at the time, like I said, in the press, it was portrayed that Diana insisted on taking William. And two, it highlights how different Diana was from the rest of the royal family and how differently she wanted her family and her children to be raised. Um, in The Royals by Kitty Kelly, it does say there was an argument and that Diana was fiercely protective of William and she had read books about the first two years of children's lives and how important it is for parents to be there. She also states that Diana believed that Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip being gone caused issues with Charles and leaving him so often. And that's I don't disagree that with that. With. I think that's probably true. So that's what I have on that scene. Okay. So then we see Charles and Diana at a press conference. Charles is not charming. I'm just going to put this on. He does not have the X factor for press. Um, Diana's super bashful. She is super ill-prepared for this like uh, interview. And she doesn't really know a lot about the facts about Australia and embarrasses not only herself, but like the crown in this scene. It's not a great scene for her. And she basically says she's really looking forward to the glamorous balls. Like when they ask her what she's most looking forward to. And I was like, woof, that's a rough answer. So in this scene, is this a scene where she said Aries, Aries doc instead of Aries rock? Yeah. yeah. So that act- or doc versus Aries rock. Yeah. Um, that never happened. Um, good. So- <laughs> it didn't look good for her. Yes. I think the, one of the reasons the writers put this in is because they were just showing how out of touch the representatives of the crown were with modern Australia. Which is, appears to be accurate, especially with mm-hmm. how, you know, upset Bob Hawk is about them, you know, having control. Well, yes. It, um, so Bob in Hawk their portrayal. Is, yeah. yeah. Yes. And so Bob Hawk is watching this on TV, this interview, and he's just laughing like these are fools are going to go down real easily with my plan of getting rid of the monarchy. Uh, They ask how Diana, how she feels about the money being spent on the tour versus the victims of this crazy storm that's going through. And Diana's like, that's not my department. And Charles steps up and was like, she's good with glamorous balls. And I'm like, you are a dick. And then it's super awkward. Bob Hawk is truly like thrilled and chuckling to himself. Evidently protests have been planned against the monarchy and he he's getting told about that. Bob thinks, Oh, this might be my time to get everyone ousted after 200 years. So Bob Hawk was a committed Republican, but he actually never petitioned for a Republic during his early office days. He had, it's been like quoted that he said, yes, I'm a Republican. And I think after Queen Elizabeth's reign, we should explore being a Republic, but he had never petitioned for it. Interesting. See, I would have assumed. And then we see a newsreel of Elizabeth, like in the past on her tour of Australia with Philip and they're in cars and there's all these crowds and it's really beautiful. And we see that Elizabeth is actually watching this on a projector at home back at the palace and Philip comes in and starts watching. And he's like, it's amazing that 1 million people came to watch their new beautiful queen. And Elizabeth says, well, now she's old and dumpy and they want to get rid of her. And Philip corrects her and he's like, no, she's experienced and mature. And it was really cute. And he was being a nice husband. And Philip basically says that 
you, like Elizabeth, you should have gone to Australia. Like this is too important of a trip to send an understudy. And she's like, well, Charles has to step up at some point. And she's like, he's like, well then send them somewhere else. Like the Seychelles, like not to the number one population Commonwealth place. Um, and he has like zero faith in Charles to do anything. And it's always shown this way. And you understand why Charles is the way he is when they show this show, but also I guess you understand the way his character is. Who knows what he's really like, but it is openly talked about that Philip isn't a huge fan of Charles and they never know what to do with him. Um, so now we're at Ayers Rock, the, the place that Diana had misspoke about. And she seems miserable. It's super hot. Charles and Diana have really bad body language. She's in a dress. I assume her like footwear is terrible. And they're starting to like hike up this huge hill, like huge rock hill thing. And she walks about 10 feet and she's like, I'm dizzy and I'm quitting. And he's like, can you fucking get it together once? Like he's mad and it's all on TV. Like reporters are there. Like they can't hear what they're talking about, but it's very obvious that there's distress and in Diana physically and also in their marriage. Um, I also would say that of course, if she's not eating or like getting any sustenance due to her eating disorder, her hiking in heat is probably not going to work, but to you. Mm -hmm. So this is national park and it's now named Uluru, which I believe I'm saying that correctly. It is close to climbers as of October, 2019 due to its spiritual significance um, from a Vogue article, it was talked about in like the Australian Mor- Morning Herald, but essentially there is video footage at the time, um, that shows Diana hesitating. It wasn't fatigue that caused this though. It was how she was dressed. So she was in this white dress with flats and it's super not good for hiking. Um, so it says, especially when there are cameras below capturing your every move. Here's an account from the Morning Herald. As she stepped off the plane at Ayers Rock, she looked down in horror. Her dress, buttoned down the front, was immediately blown open, revealing her petticoat and knees. From that moment, the princess made constant but hopeless attempts to keep the dress closed, they wrote. When Charles coaxed her to climb part of the way up the rock, she hesitated. Not, though, fear of slipping, but because she knew that coming down would expose her knees and petticoat to the world's press. Such a different scene. Mm-hmm. So wow. it's just it's so and interesting. also it talks about like how much or it speaks to how much effort they put in now to making sure dresses are weighted if they're wearing a dress just for you know not yes. necessarily modesty but to make people feel comfortable. Additionally, Kate often wears much sportier things now when she's doing athletic events than I think people did in the past. I think there's been a lot of making yes. sure women are dressed comfortably for the, the work that they're doing. So I think that the, the stuff that they've done for wardrobes now on the tours, um, think back to the, the tour in India that Kate and Will did when she was wearing local designers, their earrings that were like $19 or something like that. But it just shows how much thought and effort is put into everything. But also like think about the fact that she wears like the Zara pants when she, and the flats or the tennis shoes when they do like hiking Mm -hmm. now versus or even and her Penelope fiber boots, Megan on the boat with like the like jackets, like windbreakers and stuff. Like they're just dressed more modernly now, and they understand mm-hmm. that there's physical work at some of their work events that they need to be prepared for. And back then, that wouldn't have happened. Um, so now we see Charles like absolutely bitching on the phone to Camilla, 
he's calling Diana pathetic, weak, fragile, unreliable. How can he ever get through the next six weeks without Camilla by his side? And she's like, well, you'll call me every day. And then he goes, if Diana had one ounce of the strength of character that you seem to display at every term or turn, perhaps we'd rescue. And I think he was going to say the monarchy or whatever, but um, gross. And he's cut off. Cause I'm like, what amazing character does she have if she's willing to treat another woman this way? It's just a scene of like just a pot, meat, kettle, lack of mm-hmm. self-awareness. I granted she's not saying it, but the fact that he views her in this angelic light in the scene, I'm just like gross, disgusting, hate you. Um, he's cut off and basically he's being alerted that Diana is refusing to go more on more of the tour without William. Um, she's done. They've been on five days. She wants to see her child. They all fight with the secretary. The t- secretary is still being a royal dick to them. Like that's his title, royal dick. And then <laughs> I guess it's been, and I said, Diana wins this time and they fly back. We see a plane going back to the sheep station in South Wales. Um, Trips to see William on this uh, tour were always planned. They went back and saw him a few times. Which makes sense to me. Like, the way they're presenting it is that they were trying to keep him away. I also can be like, can you suck it up for two weeks to get the work done and then see your child? Because we all have to be on work trips sometimes. And two weeks is not six weeks. So I get the secretary side in regards to the stress of the planning and this, but the way they're showing it is like, she will do nothing without her child. And it's sounding like what historically happened is it was always planned to be time with him, time away, time with him, time away. Um, so they arrive at the sheep station. She runs to him. Monster sized baby is alive and well. There is a great photo opportunity with the paparazzi at the sheep farm. Charles is pleasantly surprised by the reaction. And we now get like this big combo between Charles and Diana, which is probably their most, the most communication you will see really between the two of them the whole season. Um, so they're on this gorgeous farm and they kind of have cute flirty banter and it's shocking a little bit. Like they just have this like moment where they're like throwing jokes at each other. And he's like, will you be wanting some of the unimaginative shepherd's pie because they're on a sheep farm and shepherd's pie. And she's like, I'm not hungry and starts drinking wine, which made me kind of laugh. Like I'm just going to drink my dinner. Um, And she's like, I want to talk to you about us. It's called what? Fruit? It's called, haven't you ever heard? Uh, oh, I had a fruit salad for dinner. Actually, it was mostly just grapes. Okay, it was just wine. I love it. No, I've not heard that. It, but it, yes, cheeky. Um, she's like, I want to talk to you about us. And I'm just going to throw this as like real housewife style, like imagining that she's drunk. She's not drunk, but it like just in my head, it's this moment. And he's like, well, why don't you go first? And she's like, oh, what a nice change of pace that would be because you always go first. You were born to go first. And I'm like, oh, my God, you toddler. Like, just like, like have a conversation. And she's like, do you know how bad things have been for me? And he's like, I'm not blind. I can see how unhappy you are and how thin you've become. And he basically alludes, like, I know you have an eating disorder and that you're unhappy and I'm sad and horrified for you. What do you want me to do? And she's like, I want to be heard. I want to be understood. I want to be like appreciated. I'm doing my best to please you and live up to your family's standards. And you have no idea what it's like to be overlooked and ignored. And he's like, excuse me, all I am is overlooked and ignored. And I'm like, also like, but how you're 
the future king of England. Like everyone stares at you all day long. He's like, I'm unthanked. I'm unappreciated. I'm uncared for. And I think this is all the mother wound that he has. Like he doesn't have these things from his mom and his dad, but he does have them from everyone else. Um, I wondered if you had thoughts on that statement. I don't. Um, I, I know it's fake, but I kind of have stuff on that later. Okay. But yeah. Um, he's like, if I'm cold or distant to you, it's because I don't feel understood by you. And I'm like, oh, it's Diana's fault. Like you don't, you don't want to work on like communicating a little bit more so your wife can understand you. Then you can feel heard. Oh, I hate him. He's such a petty monster. Um, he's like, I need words of affirmation. And she is like, well, is that why you keep going to Camilla? And she's like, what he goes, what does Camilla have to do with anything? And she's like, exactly. What does she have to do with anything? And then she brings up the pre-wedding bracelet that she found. We hear about these cufflinks that he wore on the honeymoon that are their initials intertwined. She mentions a photo photo that she found in his diary of Camilla um, and found pages and pages of love letters. And she goes, with all the passion you're writing to her that's missing in our marriage, he walks away and he's like, you show no interest in me. You won't even come to Highgrove. And I'm like, I fall over. Like that's, that's the interest. And um, she's like, of course I'm not going there. Camilla's there. And he's just really dense. And Diana remarks, like, I don't fit into your life. And he's like, you do because you're my wife and I love you. And I feel like it's the first time that he's ever said that to her on film. Like, I love you. And I'm like, but do you, or is it obligation? Is it care? Is it concern? Like, do you actually love this woman? Cause you treat her like fucking shit. And earlier he loves her in his own way not definitely not as a husband should love a wife but in his own way he does it's abusive though the way he loves her quite frankly i view emotion absolutely yeah absolutely um and she so he's like i love you and she goes gosh and it's like this moment of like instead of saying i love you back she says gosh and like the most overdone uh I don't know her accent, like her regional accent, but it was very funny. And she's blushing. And they start to talk a plan about a plan to move forward. And they need to give each other more words of affirmation, more sex. And they laugh. And they both think – and she's like, I think you're gorgeous and clever and the best man in any room. And they flirt. And I'm including this because it's really interesting that he says this and then his behavior later in the episode. And he goes – and you look gorgeous too. Your beauty, your radiance is a great, shining, spectacular miracle. When I see the light in people's faces, when they look at you, it makes me realize that I am the luckiest man in the world. We are the luckiest family in the world. And in this moment, he seems really proud of her and they're on the same page and they toast to a fresh start and they seem genuinely happy. And they have this cute montage that follows them with William in a sheep farm and no paparazzi, just like them as a family. And it's this perfect, happy moment. And it shows him as a hands-on father, too, for the first time in the show. And so that's all I have. Sally Bedell-Smith, she wrote a biography on Charles in which the following quote comes from. The great joy was that we were totally alone together. Charles wrote a friend. At the ranch, Charles and Diana watched William's first efforts at crawling. At high speed, knocking everything off tables and causing unbelievable destruction. The new parents, according to Charles, laughed and laughed with sheer hysterical pleasure. 
They did have a really, really great time on this Australian tour. Diana referred to it in her own words as they really felt like a tight family unit. Um, And I think a lot of the dialogue that they had at in this scene is in reference to the fact that they were on the same page until the crowd started coming. And I'll let you get back to that. No, it's, it is like a nice moment. Cause you're like, this is what could have been if egos were taken out of it. And mm-hmm. maybe they could have worked if they were away from Camilla because like in this, he can't go run to her right now, which is also a nice thing too. So anyway, we now arrive in Perth. Um, body language is hundred percent improved. They're laughing, smiling, perfect family. The crowds have arrived and now they're in Darwin. Like they just keep bouncing around huge crowds, still happy. And now they're in Adelaide, even bigger crowds. And then Sydney. And it's super romantic because they show them like sitting in the back of a convertible holding hands. And like, they're like nestling in each other where there's all these beautiful trees above them. And it's just like, oh, it's a fairy tale. Um, The prince speaks in front of the opera house to the biggest crowd they've had yet. And he basically shouts out Diana as the most remarkable woman and mother who he's proud to call his wife. And it's, and everyone cheers for her. Um, and now we're at that ball that she mentions earlier in the show, like that she's looking forward to. And she's in her iconic blue dress and they dance and they have really great chemistry. And Charles is like, should we give them a show? And he spins her and it's cute. And camera lights are like going off like crazy. Um, And FYI, this photo makes like the front page of every newspaper of them dancing. They giggle. They walk back to their separate rooms and she lets him into hers. Like she leaves the door open. And I was like, ooh, like it's the first time that they've actually nodded to like true romance leading to like sexual interaction between them versus like obligation of producing an heir. Um, So Camilla, we see Charles the next morning reading the newspaper Camilla and eating breakfast. Camilla calls. He declines to answer, which was like, yay. And then they get interviewed on the radio and are asked about their greatest highlight. And she's much better prepared and answers like a pro and says her greatest highlight has been meeting the people of Australia, that they've all made her feel so welcome and at home. And the radio host says, well, this is because you're unexpected and refreshing, not a typical royal in front of a royal person, which I was like, maybe not, maybe not say that. Um, And she goes, well, I don't consider myself a royal. I consider myself first and foremost a wife and mother. And then we now see Prime Minister Bob Hawke being like kind of bummed out by like these rave reviews. Like all these news cycles are basically being like, we love them. They're a perfect family. Like they're the ideal goal of what everyone should be. And so he's like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this thing I want to do, like getting rid of the monarchy. Now we see another crowd at like after this like whirlwind press tour um diana's in like this cute pink outfit with pink hat and people are handing her like flowers and gifts like you see still happen with the royals where they walk through like a street and crowds are on either side um the comments charles is receiving are like you are so lucky to be with diana the comments she's receiving are basically you're Christ reborn. Like, we're so grateful to have you. Um, She's super natural with the crowds and very physical, which has also been something that's been reported about her all the time. Um, And the crowds are starting to like push to get to her and they circle her pushing past Charles to get like just to Diana. Like they don't even care that he's the like blood Royal. Like they just want her. Um, 
and she ends up needing more security. And there's this moment where Charles now realizes that she is this radiant sun that he said, and she's the reason that people have come. And once again, no one cares about him, at least in his mind. But it's like the thing that you praised her for before, like, I feel lucky when people see you and their faces, like, no, 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 no. He resents her. So mm -hmm. to you. It was so there at this time, there were about 17 million people in Australia and 1 million people traveled to see them on this tour. There were as they were like bouncing from city to city, the the crowds were getting bigger and bigger and the police were like, we are in no way prepared for this. In the book, Diana, in her own words, um, it was said, quote, everyone always said when we were in a car, oh, we're in the wrong side. We want to see her. We don't want to see him. And that's all we could hear when we went down these crowds. And obviously he wasn't used to that, nor was I. He took it out on me. He was jealous. I understood the jealousy, but I couldn't explain that I didn't ask for it. I kept saying, you've married someone and whoever you'd have married would have been of interest for their clothes. Um, how she handles this, that, and the other. And you build the and you build the building block for your wife to stand on and to make your own building block. He didn't see that at all. According to Prince Charles' biography, he was embarrassed that the crowds favored Diana over him. Quote, for her part, Diana was upset by the disproportionate interest in her, especially when she realized that it was disturbing Charles. She collapsed under the strain, weeping to her lady-in-waiting and secretly succumbing to bulimia. In letters to friends, Charles described his anguish over the impact all this obsessed, crazed, and attention was having on his wife. There is also a, a famous photo of Diana crying in the car with the opera house behind her. Ken Lennox took it. And it doesn't look like Charles knew she was crying or he did know that she was crying and just like turned away because that would be something I Charles would I haven't seen it. I will have to post that. Yes, it's, it's heartbreaking. But it's thought that she just kind of broke down in tears because she was so severely overwhelmed and was not prepared for this at all. Like nobody was. But this is when they do believe that sort of the Diana mania really started. I believe that. And it the amount of pressure she must have been under was absolutely astronomical in comparison to anything that they had experienced before. And I think the queen may have experienced it in some regards. But also privacy and paparazzi were different when she was younger and coming into her role. And... The queen is also just a different mindset than Diana's. Diana's mu much more emotional, whereas the queen mm -hmm. is much more practical. So I, I think they just would have handled the pressure differently. I yeah. will say it does appear, although like while Harry was single, he got a lot of a lot of attention from the press and women because they wanted to marry him. But and so did William when he was single too. But once they had chosen spouses, the primary attention almost shifts to the spouse because. I, I'm going to make an assumption that women consume the news media and the fashion media about what they're wearing. And they look to them as these iconic, like, I want to be like her. I want to style like her. Like we just consume it that way. I don't think met like my husband doesn't give a shit about the Royals. Like he would never look to him. We're like, we're like, Oh my God, it's a real princess. And mm -hmm. I'm also throwing out like gender norms. Like this isn't everyone. This just, you know, I can see why people flock to the woman of the relationship. Like I think Charlotte will probably have similar things. Like it's just, we're more interesting at the end of the day, even if we're not the blood Royal, you know? Absolutely. So. And also we've had, there have been so many women that have married into the Royal family. It's something new and shiny and they bring like a, a breath of fresh air. 
they're also more, there's more to kind of talk about and glean from them. Totally. And there's more to look into their background and understand where they came from. Whereas we always already know where the Royal came from. Like you were raised watching them. We don't know who this new person is. We want to know everything about her. We want to consume her. And it's just very famous is isolating from everything I've read, which is why I'm obsessed with reading about celebrity culture. Um, But it's also a lot of power and some people handle it well. Some people want it. Some people don't. I don't know if she knew. She had to have known that she was putting herself in front of attention, but I just, I don't think anyone expected how much she was going to be adored. Mm -hmm. So now we are at, a scene, which is one of my favorites of Anne and Queen Elizabeth getting dressed for an event and they're in like military riding gear. I don't know something. Anne is remarking how the crowds are so large. Everyone loves Diana. And I think the crowds are even bigger than the ones you received back in the 18th century. And I like chortled. I don't even know. I laugh. It was so funny. And then the queen grows. It was 1954. And Anne is perfect. I love her. Anne mentions how everyone's raving about Diana's beauty, charm, and motherhood that the Australians have really taken to how physical and caring she is as a mother, kind of like throwing shade back at at Queen Elizabeth again. Um, and Anne I, says, I don't it's going to be interesting. Was, we, go ahead. I don't think she was throwing shade at, at um, Queen Elizabeth. I think she was throwing it was going back to the scene in favorites where she was like, everyone's comparing me to Diana and how oh, that's fair. Diana I think is it could be both. differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could see both on that. I definitely think that Anne and Diana were very much compared and very different because Anne was raised to be like her mom, essentially like mm-hmm. business yeah. first practical. Like, I don't think she would ever probably like coddle her children on film, you know, whereas Diana's like, let me show you my baby. Um, <laughs> and so, Anne says it's going to be really interesting to see how this dynamic unfolds because we all know how much Charles craves reassurance, attention, and praise. The tour was supposed to be his grand debut and his moment in the sun as future king, and Diana has eclipsed him. Um, So now we see some scenes back and forth, and I'll just kind of go through them quickly. Like, Diana's at a swimming event, very natural. Everyone adores her. She's making jokes. Everyone's laughing. Charles is going to go play polo. People boo and whine when they find out Diana's not going to be at that event. He falls off the horse. People laugh at him. Charles is later watching news with his secretary. We see a reporter say, well, this has been a great victory for Charles. No one can deny that it's the Princess of Wales who's truly captured the heart of the nation. Um, We see women gushing about her on the news. No one's mentioning Charles. He looks jealous, pissed, resentful. I don't know if you can put a face of resent, but that's his face. Just resent, Um, resentment. Um, They now arrive at this big dinner event. And the only reason I know it's a big dinner event is because she's wearing a crown and like, and she's wearing her, uh, her ribbon with like the medals, which often we don't see them wear unless it's some type of like state event. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost my place. Oh, she walks ahead of him up the stairs, which is a no-no. Like he's supposed to lead the way. And I was really interested in that in regards to like, was that intentional or was that accidental? Did they show it on purpose? Because like, she's always supposed to follow. And I don't know if that actually happened. He is now speaking at the event. He makes a joke about how he's lucky to be married to her. And Diana makes like this like 
squinch face. Like, I think it's pretty iconic if anyone has seen photos of her kind of making faces while people are presenting. Um, Later after the event, he's like, that's it. I've had enough. You making faces is like the end of this. And she's like, I was blushing. You were complimenting or complimenting me. And I could see like both sides of that. Like if he's gushing about her and she's like, oh, I'm not that big of a deal and makes a face like mm-hmm. it's harmless. But I think he was looking for anything to yell at her about because like this whole week had gotten to him and or weeks. Um, he can't be number two in this relationship and he clearly is. So he slams the door on her and she's like, don't do this. And the connection is now over. The relationship is done again. Um, I put my friend Amber would say he has capital T trauma and it's like triggered by being laughed at and feeling inadequate. They arrive at the prime minister's mansion next and no good body language. Like they are facing opposite directions again, not talking to each other. And we hear Bob Hawk um, talk to Charles while uh, Diana is talking to his wife, Hazel, the tree lady. (laughs) And Bob's like, I never thought I'd be commiserating with you, but let's face it. Diana's made us both look like chumps. And Charles is like, I don't understand what you're getting at. And Bob, truly, but also I don't know if he's that dumb, but like, we'll find out. Well, we'll never know because I guess – this is just fiction, but Bob explains his plan to dismantle the monarchy in Australia is over because Diana is just so damn charming. And he's like, Charles, you should be grateful. Um, like, I would have had a handle on this if it was just you. But Diana's the perfect wife, mother, and princess living a fairy tale. Like, he goes, that superstar may have set us set back the cause of the Republic of Australia for this foreseeable future. Basically, like, Diana saved the nation or saved everything. Um, They head to New Zealand. We see tribal dancers. Um, Diana is tearfully watching during the performance. And I'm going to put a trigger warning. We now see her coming back to their residence and making herself sick again. And they cut it back and forth between the tribal dancing and um, her getting sick, which I thought was kind of offensive again to Australia. And here's why. I guess this is New Zealand. But I think it's New Zealand. Well, I don't know. I remember at the Olympics, and I should have done more research on this, back a while ago, and they had that specific style of dance, tribal dancing, at, I believe, a women's polo game match, something, some rugby, maybe rugby. I'm, I know I should have looked this up. I'm kind of embarrassed, but basically it is a sign of like respect and honor. And they like, they're sticking out their tongues and there's a lot of um, yelling and it's like, it looks quite aggressive, but it is like a respect dance. It's not like a anger dance or like a, it's not warrior. It looks, it looks like a battle cry, but it's truly like, you know, it's meant to be respectful. And when they're showing it intermixed with them sticking their tongues out for this dance and then her, you know, dry or heaving up food. I just thought it was like disrespectful to what that dance represents culturally. And I should know more about it and I could look it up, but neither here nor there. Based on what you said that they did that purposefully, because if it's a, a a tribal dance about respect, the fact that she's not respecting her body or respecting the fact that, yeah, I mean, she's not respecting her body in that. So it's interesting. Yeah. I just thought it was like, I think I went on the surface level of like the mouth open, the gagging, the tongue sticking out and then like the back and forth. And I was just like, "Eh, this feels like a little disrespectful to their culture. Um, 
So um, they land in – oh, I, like, copy-pasted something. I'm sorry. So anyway, they were in New Zealand. Sorry. Guys, That's okay. sorry. Um, oh, they're done in New Zealand now. I missed my notes. They're back in London. <laughs> Guys, they're back in London. The trip's over. And he heads in his own car to Highgrove. She heads to Kensington Palace. Diana is like, I need to see the queen. And, like, the next day or however many days. But she basically walks in to see the queen solo. She walks in super confident and powerful and womanly. And I think it's because she's proven herself as an asset to the crown officially. And she <laughs> gets her moment with the queen, which before I remember, like the queen would never return her calls like before the wedding. So I think it's like the queen knew she had to accept this call. Um, Diana goes, mama, and hugs her. And the queen is like, thr- like thrown. Like it's one of my favorite scenes of just like how uncomfortable with affection the queen is. And I don't know if it's because in her mind she was like in business setting and she truly separates business from personal. But she's seen her daughter-in-law, so it should be personal. It's just, it's wild. And queen goes or diana's like you told me to call you that and the queen's just like it's like she saw a ghost it's so funny okay go ahead so this is actually apparently what diana called the queen and it's also said that sophie and kate call her mama as well oh that's cute Mm -hmm. diana tells the queen i'm struggling and charles and i are wretchedly unhappy and there are moments of perfect happiness, but behind closed doors, he resents me. And the queen's like, why do you think that is? And Diana goes, I don't know. I was hoping you could tell me. And the queen gets triggered in that statement. And she's like, oh, is it because I'm a terrible mother? And Philip is a terrible father? And um, Diana's like, no, no. I just like thought you might have some like intuition into your son who is so unhappy and I can't make happy. Anyway, um, the queen switches topics and she goes, sticking knives into Charles isn't going productive and won't solve anything. And she kind of calls Diana out a bit for gloating in her success and overstepping the mark in regards to attention seeking. I don't know. There's probably truth to it, but also, like, let her live. Who cares? Like, she's doing a great job, and everyone loves her. Um, Diana concedes that maybe I did go overboard in a few moments, um, but it does feel good to be cheered. And I also think about the fact, like, she's so miserable. Like, let her be cheered. Like, let her have this. Um, Mm -hmm. She says, joining the family hasn't been easy. I've been given no help, no support. And she goes, I think – Diana goes, I think the people feel sorry for me. So Andrew Morton called her her like intro into royal life and also this this tour baptism by fire. Um, the queen did believe that since Diana had been born into privilege, she would just get it. Apparently, she had written to a friend in 1981. I trust that Diana will find living here less of a burden than is expected. And I got that from Reader's Digest, which has some really great royal articles. Anybody is love reading Reader's Digest on my grandma's toilet. Like she had it on the back in her guest bathroom, and I would just sit there for hours and read it. And it was like I the like, jumbo size print one. Ugh. I've never seen Reader's Digest anywhere but next to a toilet. Also, like bring back Reader's Digest. Yes, 2020. Uh, come on, let's do it. She, the Queen, says something really interesting, and she goes, "I think it's a mistake." to think that the public feel any sympathy for us at all. And Diana goes, I think it's a mistake to think that they do not. And in this moment, 
you realize the monarchy and the modernization of people have like it's changed significantly from when the queen was younger. And it, I find it interesting that the queen would think that also after having this episode after the Fagan episode where she's realizing like people want to be heard. They want to have relationships with them. They want to modernize. They want to like people are becoming more vocal about emotions, needs, feelings, et cetera. And so I don't know if the queen would necessarily truly think this or if this was just good writing, but it was this moment of like the queen needs to realize it's changed significantly. Diana goes, I need to be part of the team. If you show me love queen, everyone else will approve and accept me. Um, the queen literally is like, I'm done with this meeting, uh, rings her bell, gets up to leave. And Diana hugs her so tightly and the queen stands there like immobile and uncomfortable and does not hug back. And the staff member, I don't know if it was Martin or someone else, like is in the corner to grab the queen for her next appointment and looks so uncomfortable. It is truly, it's so funny. These people do not hug each other. Uh, the queen leaves immediately, like cuts off Diana, like not saying anything. Like I'm going to work on making you feel accepted or loved or anything. Um, it's awful. That's what I wrote. So the queen actually used to have like audiences with Diana a lot. And then it got to the point where she was like, all she does in here is cry. And so she started like dreading them. Um, But I wanted to talk about hugs real fast. So, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite movies, What a Girl Wants with Amanda Bynes, when her grandma says, we're British, we only show affection to dogs and horses. True. And I adore that. Um, so I wanted to talk about hugs that the queen has received publicly that have all have lengthy news articles written about them. Michelle Obama hugged the queen in 2009 and the queen actually returned the gesture. Alice Frazer in 1991. So this was, uh, when the queen was in DC, she was there to visit, uh, some government housing and Alice offered her a traditional Southern lunch of fried chicken and potato salad, which the queen politely declined. In 1992, the Prime Minister of Australia, Paul Keating, hugged her. And then in 2000, his successor, John Howard, hugged her. And then in 2002, Louis Garneau, a Canadian cyclist, hugged her. Um, And these were all written about extensively because it's a huge break in protocol. However, Diana was family. But I just thought it'd be fun to to throw that in there. No, that's great research. I also, like, why would you decline fried chicken genuinely? I'd eat that every day of my life. And I'm gluten-free. I would still eat the fried chicken. Oh, okay. I need a restaurant is what I'm realizing. So we see the queen discussing the hug with her ladies, like her ladies' dinner, lunch, whatever she has, a.k.a. her mother, her sister, her daughter. And I put, why can't Diana be in one of these? And maybe they did have some and then they had a nuclear family. But it was just this moment of, if Diana is feeling so ostracized, like let her come to lady dinner. Um They ask about what the hug was like, and she goes, tight and desperate. (laughs) They debate if she has a point about modernizing affection with people, and, like, they kind of go back and forth, like, maybe she is right, and isn't that how the – and the queen goes, isn't that how the crown survives by staying relevant? Um, The queen mother goes, Diana is an immature little girl who in time will give up her struggles, give up her fight, and bend as Philip did, as they all do. And when she bends, she will fit. And Elizabeth goes, what will happen if she doesn't bend? And Margaret immediately goes, she will break. And this scene has been shown in all of the previews of the season because everyone knows she breaks. Um, Anne immediately breaks a breadstick. Like just at that moment, she takes like one of those like 
cardboardy breadsticks and just cracks it. And I love her. And then we see Diana staring out a window, probably crying. And that's the end of the show for that episode. This was such a good one. It was. It really shows a great, not a great dynamic, but it shows a great example of what I assume the dynamic between Charles and uh, Diana really was like and what it felt, how isolated Diana felt in every aspect, like in her marriage, in her family, in her work, like every single aspect of her life was isolated outside of parenting, which makes Mm -hmm. so much sense why she put so much effort and fought for it, fought for the ability to parent. So, well, guys, we're on to episode, is it six, seven next week? Yeah. Yeah. Seven. All right. Well, rate, review, subscribe, send us any questions, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye.